in prayer for me. I'm excited and looking forward to getting into those books and going verse by verse. And I had a sermon I thought that I was going to get to today that ended up turning into probably a three-week series that has to do with the judgment of the nations and an overview of the end times doctrine. So I decided to go ahead and go with this one this morning. So if you just would be in prayer for me that the Lord would help me to get out this simple thought. We do have a lot of verses of scriptures that we're going to read. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along. If you have a phone, you might want to look and turn along or else you can just listen. Sometimes people like to take notes and jot things down and look at it for later, but we have the screens uh, not hooked up again this morning either. So all of the verses, I'll just be reading them to you. So you're welcome to follow along, write them down, or as I said, just listen. We're going to do a message with a simple thought this morning on the subject, the unforgiveness of Jonah, the unforgiveness of of Jonah. Let's launch into Jonah chapter 3. As I said, we have a lot of verses, so if you'll stick with me, I pray that the Lord will help me get this out, have a flow to the thought, and that you'll see where we're going eventually, and that it will be a blessing to each and every one of you. Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. We'll continue now. Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word of the Lord came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and by his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Excuse me. Verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil and he had, that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. Heavenly Father, I feel like I need one more brief word of prayer. I pray that you'd help me now, help me preach, guide my thoughts. And Lord, I pray you'd give us ears to listen, and that not because of me, but because of your word, that there would be some truth given here this morning that would speak to people's hearts, and that we would get a blessing from the preaching of your word. Lord, I love this church. I love every person who's here this morning. I'm so glad that you've given us the opportunity to worship together. I pray now once again that you'd fill me with your spirit, empty me of myself and sin, help me to preach the words of the Lord this morning, and help us all to listen and focus and be able to receive the words of God. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. We know the book of Jonah is a very familiar story to us, how God came to Jonah with a direct command to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach to it that they needed to repent, turn from their wicked ways, and ask God for forgiveness, or else within a short period of 40 days, God would see that whole entire city destroyed. He would see it 
overthrown, taken down, however God would decide to do it. It's reminiscent really of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God destroyed that city with fire from heaven, but God did have a caveat where He said, the whole city doesn't have to repent, but if I can only find a few righteous people there, my judgment will be spared. And you know the story of how Abraham prayed with God, and the number started, what was it? Uh, I don't I don't even recall, but with a large at least 50 people. And God said, I will not destroy it. And then Abraham talked him down to 40 and to 30 and to 20 and all the way down to 10. And God said, if I can find 10 righteous people there, I will not destroy that city. And I just want to take a moment to say that sometimes it's discouraging to think we live in a city with so many people and why aren't more people seeking God? And why aren't we able to see more people saved and more people who want to hear the words of the Lord? But we need to remember that God's judgment can be spared and stayed. Not not requiring us to get everyone saved, but just if a few righteous people will live faithfully for the Lord, then God sometimes will see that effort and bless and protect His people, and the judgment of God will be stayed. We know from the book of Genesis that there was Lot and his wife and his children and his sons-in-law. And if they had just influenced another three or four people maybe outside of that immediate family, an entire city could have been spared the judgment of God. But here, God sees a city that is wicked in Nineveh. We know that they were an Assyrian people. They were the enemies of the nation of Israel. They had committed many wicked atrocities where some people say, depending on who you read after, that they would take the prophets and boil them in oil or put them to death. We know that they were barbaric. We know that they were the enemies of the nation of Israel, which is, as we'll talk about this morning, is believed to be the most likely reason as to why Jonah would not actually want them to repent and get saved because he had some bitterness in his heart most likely already towards these people. But as Jonah disobeyed God, God did not leave him alone. And I believe that we have a God that gives us free will. We get to decide what we will do, but we do not always get to decide how God will respond to what we choose. And while Jonah chose to run the other way, God said, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, no, I'm getting on a boat and I'm going to sail down to Tarshish and run away and stay away from those evil people were in that city where I don't even want to go. We know the story. We know that in the book of Jonah, God sent a storm and the people began to throw things overboard. And Jonah said, it's me. I've run from the true and living God. You have to cast me into the sea. And eventually, as he was cast into the sea, we know that the Bible says a great fish that God had prepared came and swallowed up Jonah. Jesus called it a whale. And the word for whale there in the the Greek, in the New Testament, in the English at the time, it could mean a giant whale or some species of great giant fish. Fish. I think we may not be exactly sure what kind it was, but God had prepared some great fish, the book of Jonah says, to come and swallow him up. And we know that he survived for three days and three nights there in the whale of that belly is where he was. And Jesus said that that was a picture. The only sign that would be given to his generation would be the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so too will Jesus be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And just like Jonah came out of the whale again, Jesus would come out of the grave again, come up from the heart of the earth again, and would rise 
rise again. And that would be the only sign given to his generation to prove that he was God. And they would then have to choose to repent and believe him or else to reject him and continue in unbelief. It's led some people to theorize that maybe Jonah died in the belly of the whale and then was resurrected again from some language that Jonah uses and from that 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 verse about the sign of the prophet Jonah. I don't really think, in my opinion, it happened, but whether it did or not, Jesus said it would be likened unto what he would do when he went to the heart of the earth and then rose again. If you're swallowed by a great fish who go, descends to the bottom of the sea, you would not expect to live and to survive, but God who punished him there, kept him alive, and brought him to the place where he would have another opportunity to go and obey what God had commanded him to do. In chapter 2, in verse number 10, we read that the fish vomited up Jonah upon the dry land after God had heard his prayer. And chapter 3 says that God told Jonah the second time, go to Nineveh and preach unto it the preaching that I tell you to preach. And we read in chapter 3, that Nineveh was a great exceeding journey of three days. But verse 4 says that Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. He was so ready to obey God this time for fear of the consequences that he made a three-day trip in one day. He obeyed God this time. And the Bible tells us in the verses that we read in chapter 3 that as the people heard Jonah's simple message, which as we know was being preached from a bitter heart that didn't really even want to obey God. Jonah did not really even want to see these people repent and be spared. But he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. And something remarkable happens. God, who's rich in mercy... God who's rich in grace, God who wants to spare rather than to judge, had worked on the hearts of these people and He gave them the opportunity to respond to the message of Jonah. And they did. They repented. The king proclaimed a fast and and they were covered in sackcloth and ashes to show their repentance for their sins. And verse 9, he said, "...who can tell if God will repent and turn away from this anger?" And verse 10 of chapter 3 says that God did see what they did and He honored it. He allowed them to turn. He allowed them to find mercy. And that is the heart of God. We could say, how is a city that is so wicked that ready to repent? And we could even say, how could God use Jonah who didn't even want to be there to preach and see a whole city saved instantly when other prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah spent their entire lifetime preaching to a generation who had shut them off and threw them in prison for preaching the truth. I think it shows a couple of things. It shows the grace of God, but it also shows that the truth that God wants us to communicate to people is not really about the messenger. It's about the responder And it's about the God who's ready to do the work. Now, God still works through the messenger. I'm not saying that that's not important. But when we, if if we've done evangelizing or we've seen people profess Christ as Savior, sometimes someone has said, well, I, I saved this person. And we say, no, we don't save anyone. We tell them how to get saved. We bring them to God and we tell them the truth of the Word of God. And then they choose whether they ask God to save or not. So you can call it soul winning. Some people have said we just call it soul warning. We warn people and then it's up to them whether or not they want to be one to Jesus Christ. Because a messenger stepped out and preached and they responded. Not because the power was in the messenger, but the power was in the message. The power was in the words of God. And the people who heard it actually chose 
to receive it. I believe it's the book of Hebrews tells us that the word that is preached unto us will not profit us at all unless it is mixed with faith by the hearer. So the preacher can be right with God and Isaiah and Jeremiah, the prophets, can be as right with God as they want to and righteously proclaim a right message. But if the hearer shuts it off and pushes it away, then it will not do any good to the people who hear it if they do not choose to receive it, if it is not mixed with faith on the part of the hearer. And Jesus, when He showed up to that generation, and they said, give us a sign in Matthew 12, 38 through 42. That's when He said, you won't receive any sign but that of the prophet Jonah. And then He spoke of His death and of His resurrection. And Jesus said, and behold, you refuse... He said, all of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. I think if we were to compete for the understatements of all of the Bible, perhaps that one could be the greatest understatement. A greater than Jonah is here. Yes, Jesus was a lot greater than Jonah. Jonah had a bad attitude. He was disobedient. He was angry. He didn't even want to see people respond to his own message. Jesus was the Lamb of God. Jesus was sinless. Jesus was perfect. And even the message that Jesus preached did not save the hearer unless they chose to respond. And they rejected him and hated him so much that they put him on a cross. Now that doesn't make Jonah greater than Jesus. And I'm just saying we should not use any excuses to fail to reach out with the gospel, to fail to try and live for God. But I do not believe for one second that God looked at the ministry of Isaiah and of Jeremiah and said, well, yours counts for a lot less than Jonah because you had less success. Numbers-wise, no, success does not come from what the responders do. Success comes from obeying the Word of God. And if Isaiah obeyed God and preached and the people shut it off, then God was still pleased with Isaiah. And if Jeremiah preached the message that God told him to preach and they took him and they threw him into prison and bound him in stocks and chains, God was still pleased with Jeremiah because Jeremiah was obeying the Word of God. We cannot control the responses of the hearts of people. All we can do is obey God. And we have to remember that it's not about us. It's not about our righteousness or even our giftedness. It's about the content that God has told us to share. And then ultimately that heart will have to decide whether they respond to the good graces of God or not. They were saved. They reaped the mercy of God. As I alluded to, was Jonah happy? No, he was not. Look at chapter 4 and verse number 1. This is right after the text saying that the people repented. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Number 1, we'll consider this morning, Jonah was sinfully angry. Can you imagine preaching and seeing an entire city repent and come to God and then getting angry at the fact that they actually did what God was telling them to do? I'll briefly mention that the Bible often warns us against anger. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-four says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. Proverbs 27.4, wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. Proverbs 14.17, he that is soon angry dealeth foolishly. Proverbs 16.32, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. 
Proverbs 19.11, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Ephesians 4 tells us, Be ye angry and sin not, neither let the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. And James chapter 1 tells us that we should be swift to hear, but slow to speak and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. The Bible does tell us that there are times where we can be righteously angry. As Jesus ran into the temple and overturned the tables, there's a few allusions in the Bible to anger being a righteous thing. And if someone's trying to harm our family or do something evil or harm the church of God, we should get angry. We should have a a move to want to fight against what is wrong, but not in our flesh. Not as a way of life. The Bible warns us that anger is dangerous. And verse 1 says that Jonah was very angry. Of all the things to be angry about, of all the things to accuse God about, what a dumb thing, what a foolish and wicked thing to be displeased exceedingly and very angry about that God was actually sparing people who heard the message and responded. Jonah 4 verse 4, Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? Look down to verse 9. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Briefly, just to say that the anger in the heart of Jonah was not something that God approved of. That response to snap back at God and said, I do well to be angry. I'm right in my anger. He was not right. With God, And again, it just plays into the amazingness of the fact that they all responded to the message. But it just reminds us that it's not about the messenger. It's about the message. And God can use a, God can use a vessel that's not perfect. Because if He did not, then none of us would ever be used by God. No great work is ever done for God because the messenger is righteous. No great work is ever done for God because the person who God is using is without sin. But every time that God has used anyone, from the prophets in the Bible to Charles Spurgeon to me or you, it's been because God looked at a sinner, at an imperfect person who at a specific time in their life yielded their heart and said, God, I want to be used by you. And people responded to it and heard the message. And the truth of the Word of God is what makes the difference. And sometimes God even uses a heart that's really not that yielded to Him like Jonah was. But at least Jonah went the second time. He obeyed and God used the message that was preached. Number one, Jonah was sinfully angry. Number two, Jonah justified running from God. I have the word justified in air quotes because he tried to justify the fact that he ran from God. He looked at his own disobedience and tried to make an excuse for it, as no doubt all of us are apt to do. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Jonah said, God, you're proving my point. I told you this is why I didn't want to obey you. I ran from you because I knew that if I gave them the opportunity to believe, they might actually believe. And Jonah tried to justify running from God. How foolish and how wrong. I'll read briefly from Psalm 139. If you'd like to flip over there and follow, this is one of those beautiful psalms written by David. 
where he tells us the futility of ever trying to run from God or to hide from God. And this morning, none of us maybe have tried to flee to a different city to disobey God, but no doubt all the time we're tempted to try and hide from God. Our sin, our willfulness. Sometimes we fight what we know we believe God is calling us to do, but the Scriptures remind us that it's futile to run from God, for He's everywhere and He knows everything, including the thoughts and intents of our heart. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For, lo, for there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it all together. Verse 5 says, Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from Thy Spirit? Or whither shall I flee from Thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven... Thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, Thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall Thy hand lead me, and Thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from Thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to Thee, for Thou hast possessed my reins, Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. It should cause us to fear, to think that God knows what we do in the dark as well as in the light. That God knows the thoughts that we think as well as the words that we speak. But it also should cause us to be grateful and to be in wonder and awe of our God and how much He loves us. That the text says He compasses us, meaning He's around us, behind and before. He surrounds us. He knows where we're going. He knows where we've been. He knows the worst things that we've ever done. But the text still goes on to say that we should praise Him for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. It should cause us to fear, but it also should cause us to be loved and to rejoice that God cares enough about us that we cannot hide from Him. We should learn from these verses that we cannot run from God. Psalm 139.23, God in, David then invites God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A heart that is honest and wants to be blessed by God will not try to hide sin, but rather will look to God and say, Search me, know me, and show me where I'm wrong in ways that I may not even know that I'm wrong. For I know that you see it anyway, God, so show it to me. Jonah was sinfully angry and Jonah tried to justify running from God. Number three, which is the heart of what I want to speak about this morning, I believe, number three... Jonah forgot he was recently in dire need of God's mercy. If you're still there in Jonah or want to look back at chapter number 4, in verses 2 and 3, we just read verse 2 where he said, I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew that you were slow to anger. I knew that you might have mercy on these people. Then in verse 3, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Okay, let's turn back to Jonah chapter 1. 
what I want you to note from these next few verses, as I said, a lot of scriptures, so please try to hang with me, is that Jonah was angry and bitter at God and said, it's better for me to die than to continue to live with this humiliation. What was he angry about? That God had been merciful to others. But look at the heart that's bitter in chapter 4. Angry, God would spare someone else and compare it to his attitude when he himself was facing death and was needing to cry out to God for mercy. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2, we see the prayer of Jonah as he repented and cried out to God for mercy from the fish's belly. Verse 1. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Look at what he's saying. Look at how he's describing the hopelessness of his position. But then he's saying, I will look back to God. I will ask for mercy. Verse 5, the waters compass me about even to the soul. The depth clothes round about me. The weeds were wrapped about my head. Some poetic language, but we believe he's speaking about being in the belly of that great fish as the fish itself went into the depths of the waters and as the seaweed and whatever that fish had ingested was wrapped around Jonah and around his head. He sits there in a place that is disgusting, that he's afraid, that he really knows he should have died if God was not keeping him alive miraculously. Verse 6. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee and to thy holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. Here's the point I kind of wanted to hammer home mostly this morning. The same heart that was crying out to God, saying, have mercy on me. I'm helpless. I can't save myself. I've sinned. Give me another chance. God, forgive me. Remember, he says, out of the depths, I cried unto thee. He cried out for the mercy of God. And then when he received it, he said, salvation is of the Lord. I'll sing the song of thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you've delivered me. That exact same heart that was willing to cry out to God and beg for mercy was just a short while later angry that God had granted mercy to others who cried out for that same mercy we could compare our plight to that of Jonah. We could compare how Jonah poetically said, I was in the depths of hell as that fish swam among the bottom of the ocean and he had to cry out to God. So too our soul was hopelessly lost without Christ. Our salvation could never be earned 
by ourselves. And as we've cried out to God from the depths of our misery, our lives have been brought up from corruption, as verse 6 says. Verse 9, Jonah said, He will sacrifice unto God the offering of thanksgiving, because salvation is of the Lord. And this morning, I believe that for the children of God, salvation should always be accompanied with thanksgiving in the hearts of God's people. I don't know what's going on in your life this morning. I don't know what you have to rejoice about, what you have to be thankful about. But I know that David, and I believe it was David in one place, and Habakkuk in the other, described their troubles and their trials in the way that God seemed to have turned their back, his back on him or upon the people of God. Then they make this statement, Yet will I rejoice in the God of my salvation. They looked at their circumstances and they said, they're not what I wish they would be, yet I will rejoice. And sometimes as a Christian, we're going to have to choose to be thankful to God and to rejoice, not because everything is going right, but because we look at it and we say, I'm going to yet praise Him. I'm going to praise Him in spite of what is happening. And then what did they say? Did they just say rejoice in God? They said, yet will I rejoice in the God of my salvation. And this morning... If I could just testify that I've received Christ as my Savior this morning, if you're like me, and at one point in time you were destined to spend an eternity in the lake of fire apart from God, and we continued in our sins, some of them arrogantly and purposefully, and some of them maybe not even understanding or knowing the depths of our sin, but God, through His good grace, chose to keep us alive and bring us to a point in time in our life where someone shared with us the truth of the Word of God that our sins do not have to be paid for in the lake of fire. They were already paid for by Christ on the cross. And that His death was not for His own sins, but they were for mine and they were for yours. And it was a vicarious death, meaning in place of. He took our sins, He paid our penalty, and then He offered it to whosoever will. And He brought us to a time in our life where someone shared us the gospel and where the Holy Spirit smote our hearts and convicted us and gave us understanding. And as we cry out to Him and call upon His name, He gave us salvation. If that's your testimony this morning, that we could take the rest of the service and the rest of the week probably to hear people's stories just in here this morning about how God worked in your life to save you, then you have something to be thankful about. You have a song of thanksgiving that you should be able to sing in gratitude towards God no matter if your health is taken away, no matter if your reputation is lied about. Whatever happens, we should be able to look and say, My name is written in heaven. I will rejoice. As Jesus said to the disciples, Rejoice not that the devils are subject to you, but rejoice because your name is written in heaven. And it can never be blotted out. This should produce thanksgiving in our life. Jonah was willing in chapter 2 to say, I offer thanksgiving and praise because God has spared me. But I didn't see much of that in chapter 4. Let's flip over to Matthew chapter 18, if you will. I think that this story, this parable of Christ told in response to a question from Peter perfectly illustrates what Jesus was, what, what, what happened in the life of Jonah and where he went wrong. Matthew chapter 18, if we plug through this text, we're almost done here this morning. Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Tell seven times 
You have to love Peter and his questions. And Peter wanted to know, where is the limit to my long suffering and forgiveness? Is seven times enough? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And as you've heard me say before, I don't believe Jesus was saying, Peter, take out a sheet of paper and make tally marks till you get to 490 times. And then you're free from ever forgiving your brother ever again. He took the number that Peter said seven times. And he said, no, 70 times seven to illustrate the fact that forgiveness towards our brothers should be offered without limit. The way that God has offered forgiveness to us. And that's what he illustrates through this parable. We'll move quickly here. Verse 23. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, my research into this, which was a few years late, a few years ago, so the numbers might be a little bit different, especially considering the current rate of inflation. But I had always heard this story, or I'd heard it a couple times anyway, where someone said that the the man owed so much that he could never pay back, but then he refused to for- forgive someone who barely owed him anything, something like five dollars. But what the, the article I read and the research that had to do with that, they said that if you took a, a working man's wages and tried to put them in today's terminology, um, Chris, I'm not going to take questions right now. I'm going to try to get through this this morning. That it would have to do with basically 200,000 years of a working man's wages. In other words, he owed a debt that he could never pay back if he worked at a day rate for the rest of his life. In today's terminology, it would be something like someone who earned $33,000 a year with no hope of an increase, owing a debt of $7.4 billion. In other words, there's no way to pay it back. So there they come, and when he has no way to pay it back, the solution is, all right, sell him into slavery and his wife and his children and all that he has. Verse 26, the servant therefore fell down and worshiped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him. And what does it say? And forgave him the debt. He did not say, all right, I'll give you enough time to pay it back, for he knew he could never pay it back in his entire lifetime of working. But he said, I have compassion on you. I forgive you all. This represents the debt that Christ has forgiven us. He forgave us the payment of our sins, which we could never pay back to Him through good works. Remember, this is in response to the question that Peter asked about forgiving a brother who has offended us. Verse 28, But the same servant, the one who was just forgiven, went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. Now again, you you can, can check it yourself. It's obvious the implication from the text is that a man who was forgiven a debt he could never repay refused to forgive someone a debt that could be paid back eventually. But according to the research I read, one writer suggested that this would be comparable to four months' salary of a working man, or for a person who made $33,000, $34,000 a year, something like $11,700. Now, 
I think that makes more sense than saying, well, he refused to forgive someone who owed him $5. If you owe me $5, I can forgive you for that. And I can feel real spiritual about it. Ah, look at me. I'm Christ-like. I forgave. But if you owe me $12,000, and again, adjust it for inflation, it's probably more like at least 15 or 16. Now, my spirituality might get tested a little bit. Because I've got some things I could do with that money. Oh, I know it may not be the end of the world. I could make that up with working and saving myself. But I had some plans for that money and you owe it to me. And you see, it may be easy to forgive someone who barely does any offense at all. But if you were to negligently injure me, if you were to cost me my job, if you were to cost me an opportunity to go to a college that was ready to accept me and you did something to smear my character or to fail to let my letter be delivered, you see what I'm saying? If it was something significant that mattered to me, it would make me angry and it would make my flesh struggle with wanting to forgive you. But in comparison to what Christ has already forgiven me for, whatever it is that I need to forgive you about cannot even begin to compare And that's what Jesus was trying to communicate. So this same servant who was just so hopelessly lost moments ago, he was about to be sold into slavery, thrown into prison, his children sold into slavery and his wife. And because someone who was not required to forgive him said, I have compassion on you. I loose you from your debt. You're free. Don't worry about it. This same servant went out and he found that man who owed him that, we'll say, four months of a working man's salary. And he took him violently and physically by the throat and said, pay me what you owe me. And we could say how callous, how over his head, how wicked to be forgiven such a debt, but show a same lack of forgiveness to others. But Jesus was trying to say, if you refuse to forgive other people, That's exactly what you're doing because I've already forgiven you. This is the message of Christ. Be ye kind one toward another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, Ephesians 4 says, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Verse 29, And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. And the implication there is the one that refused to forgive, that was miserable and selfish and unforgiving was delivered to the tormentors. He was the one who was suffering. And in like manner, we will suffer if we hold on to bitterness in our hearts. I'm aware that Jesus said at one point, go to your brother and if he repent, then forgive him. And sometimes there are offenses that are so severe that we should not release people from consequences. We don't agree with their sin. We don't give them opportunity to continue hurting us. But whatever they've done, we release it. 
the bitterness in our heart and we release hatred in our heart towards them and we love them and we pray for them as Jesus told us to do with our enemies. And to wrap it up, we'll go back to the book of Jonah chapter 4. If Jonah's real problem truly was hatred of the Ninevites for their crimes against his people, if it was a racial tension, if it was the fact that their people had often been at war with his people and perhaps had persecuted the prophets of God, if he was angry that they got saved because he hated those people for what they'd done, then Jonah forgot or did not grasp or truly care just how much God had forgiven him. And I believe this morning, you and I need to show the grace and mercy of God to others that we would desire to receive from others and from God Himself, and that we have already received from God. Jonah chapter 4 and verse number 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. God's going to teach Jonah a lesson here. God's going to give a little illustration. He says... Yeah, I do well to be angry. He's unrepentant. So as he goes outside of the city, on the east side of it, he has a journey. He makes a little a little booth, a little resting place. And the sun comes up and beats down on Jonah's head. And perhaps some people, depending on where they lived in the world, have read this text and said, why is Jonah so upset? It's, it's just a little warm, a little heat. But if you've lived through Texas summers like this one, you know what it's like to be in 108 degrees without relief. And Jonah did not have air conditioning. He didn't have a refrigerator. And the sun was beating upon him and vexing him. And God said, oh, Jonah, are you too hot? Jonah, do you need a blessing from me? Here, I'm going to cause a gourd or a plant to grow up over you and give you shade so that you can rest. And it might still be hot in the shade, but it's a whole lot better than when the sun directly beats upon you and scorches you. So Jonah sits and rests under the plant that God had blessed him with to give him shade. And he was, verse 6 said, exceeding glad of the gourd. Thank you, God. Verse 7. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. So the plant dies. His shade is gone. His relief from the heat is gone. Verse 8, And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live and God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. That was the context of Jonah making that statement. His shade was taking away. He's suffering from dehydration and sunburn and desert-like conditions. And he's angry. And he said, it's better for me to die. And God said, Jonah, do you think it's appropriate for you to be angry over the fact you've lost your shade tree? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Verse 10, Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons, 
that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Over 120,000 people, God said to Jonah, who were lost, who didn't know the truth, and you wanted me to spare the gourd, you're angry that I did not spare your shade tree. But should I not spare these people who are willing to repent? Hatred of other men coming from Christians shows that we do not understand what we have been forgiven. I hate sin. I believe the Bible teaches us to hate sin. I hate what it does to people. I hate what it does to me. I hate what it did to Jesus when He had to die on the cross because of that wicked sin. I hate what it's going to do to the souls of people in eternity. And we cannot be considered faithful to God if we're not willing to stand up and proclaim, sin is sin, it's wrong. We're going to speak out the truth. But the New Testament tells us we should speak the truth in love, from a heart of love like God has. And if this morning, if you look at other people's sin and you hate people who live a homosexual lifestyle, or you hate people who live in whatever sins you may consider to be so bad, and you look at people who are running from God and you hate them, and I believe you do not have a depth of the understanding of how bad your own sin was that Christ has forgiven. Number four, the story ends without us knowing if Jonah repented learned his lesson, or if he changed. He certainly showed no gratitude, no compassion. Did he change? I'd like to think in my mind that maybe he understood the lesson and he repented and he began to rejoice at God's goodness for others. But in my mind, I can also see another possibility where Jonah refuses to forgive. He refuses to learn his lesson and he walks away angry and bitter for the rest of his life, never again to be used by God. I don't know what the answer was, but I know that God was giving him an opportunity to change just like he gave the people of that city, just like he gives you and just like he gives me. Let's bow for prayer. If Rachel will come and play, we'll have a time of prayer this morning. Whatever God has spoken to your heart about, let's continue in prayer for a a moment and let's ask that God, whether we need it today or think we need it today or not, that He would ask us to enable us to grasp within our heart the depths of what God has done for us when He forgave us our sin and that we would be willing to offer that to other people and have the heart of God, which is a heart that is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. At the altar or in your seat, let's continue in a moment of prayer.